like what we do here at Clever, please consider supporting the show. To make a one-time donation, click the link in the episode description. Thank you. Hello there. This message is coming to you from the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, a collection of fascinating conversations with leading historians, giving you the lowdown on history's biggest characters, hidden stories and greatest adventures. Speaking of great adventures, this week, the History Extra podcast is brought to you by Booking.com. Whether you're looking for a culture-filled city break, a local getaway or a far-flung adventure, you can save at least 30% with Booking.com's Black Friday deals. These deals are for a limited time only, so you'll need to book before 1st of December to make the most of them. But the good news is that you'll have the flexibility to travel any time in 2021. Head to booking.com forward slash Black Friday to book your next big adventure. I have wasted a lot of time and money on foundations that don't match me, and now I can't even swatch in store anymore. Thankfully, I found the Il Maquillage Power Match Quiz. It literally found my perfect foundation shade in seconds. Plus, with Try Before You Buy, I was even sent my full-size match to try for free for 14 days. But I'm definitely keeping this. Take the quiz at ilmakiage.com slash quiz. That's I-L-M-A-K-I-A-G-E dot com slash quiz. Support for Clever comes from Master and Dynamic. We know you love great design and care about quality audio. So we know you will love Master and Dynamic's headphones and earphones. Brilliant sound and design motivates everything they do. So Master and Dynamic products are the perfect gift for the music and design obsessed alike. And after you see the craftsmanship and premium materials, we know you'll want to get a pair for yourself too. Whether you're looking for luxurious and comfortable over-ear headphones, portable and power-packed true wireless earphones, or an immersive wireless speaker, Master and Dynamic has what you need to upgrade your listening experience. Hear your favorite podcast, clever, obviously, and your favorite songs in a whole new way. Visit masterdynamic.com and use the code CLEVER for 10% off your new pair of headphones. Terms and conditions apply. That's masterdynamic.com. Hey, everybody. Before we get started, we have a special message for you. Thank you. Seriously and sincerely, thank you. We just passed the 1 million downloads mark, and we are so effing grateful to be doing this and to know that you're listening. We love you. We're excited to have gotten this far, and now we are extra committed to making this show even better. So we need your help. If you like Clever, rate and review us on iTunes, please. It really helps us connect with new listeners and fare better in whatever algorithmic searches the tech powers that be use to aid discovery. And if you have constructive advice for us, we definitely want to hear that too. You can send an email to hello at cleverpodcast.com. That's the best place for us to receive and digest your thoughts properly. We love any feedback that helps make the show better. And most importantly, please fill out our listener survey. It's short, we promise. Go to cleverpodcast.com slash survey. This will help us understand your wants and needs better and help us craft a Patreon page that will meet your every desire. Not to mention, it'll help us partner with cooler and more relevant brands, which helps us keep the lights on and stay in business. So yay to you, and thank you for being with us on this magical journey. 
Cue the unicorns and rainbows. Yes, and sorry we're <laughs> such dorks, but we love you and we love this. Again, go to cleverpodcast.com slash survey to help us out. And thank you, thank you a million times over. We're trying to change how people work and make their working lives more simple, productive, and pleasant. And as we scale the company, we're affecting more and more lives. There's actually a missed opportunity there. We don't look at ourselves and say, how do we best make our own employees' lives more simple, pleasant, and productive? What cues can we take from our product aspirations and apply them to our own workplaces? If we're going to say, you know, our product is culturally transformative, you know, we need have to apply that to ourselves. Hi, everyone. I'm Amy Devers. I'm Jamie Derringer, and this is Clever. And today we're talking to Christy Tillman. Christy is currently the head of global experience design at Slack, the online collaboration hub that has transformed the way we work. She started at Slack as the head of communication design after being the design director for Society of Grownups, a startup dedicated to democratizing financial literacy for millennials. She studied business in school, then got a master's in history, then decided to get another bachelor's in graphic design. She worked in footwear for a while, doing branding design for companies like Puma and Reebok. She also spent a very formative stint as a designer at IDEO. Her path is fascinating, and so is she. So let's talk to Christy. My name is Christy Tillman. I live in San Francisco, California. I am the head of global experience design at Slack. Why? Because I love working at Slack. (laughs) That's a pretty pure, straightforward answer. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, well, we can get into what you do a little bit later. But first, we kind of want to go back to the beginning. So can you kind of set the stage for us where you grew up, what your family was like? What kind of kid were you? What did you do? So um, I grew up in Tallahassee, Florida, which is in North Florida, the Panhandle. So it's really more like South Georgia, Southern Alabama than the typical Florida you think of when you think of Miami or Orlando. <laughs> so I grew up in Tallahassee, Florida, pretty much a suburban city, probably about 175,000, two major state universities there. Think think of your average pedestrian suburban town. So I grew up in a sur- suburb right outside of the city, grew up with a dad, a mom, a brother. You know, I was, I guess, a gifted kid. I was always in advanced and gifted classes. There wasn't anything really far out there. I mean, I kind of grew up in a cult. I grew up with a Jehovah Witness, like the first couple, like the first 10 years of my life. And then when my parents got divorced and my mom um, remarried, we left that religion. So I think like out of all the wild, kind of weird Hmm. ways you could possibly grow up, I kind of grew up pretty normal. You know, a lot of people in my age range, you know, grew up through, through a divorce, right? That's pretty typical. You know, I was into art in high school. That sort of led me into design, which I think we probably will talk about later. You know, I was a pretty precocious kid, liked to read. I was really into music, really loved TLC. That was my first album that I ever bought. Ooh, on the TLC tip. Mm-hmm. It's my first CD. <laughs> I love that you shared that. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, I really loved music. My mom probably would classify me as a little bit of a loner. You know, I had a couple of friends, but I wasn't, you know, I always kept to myself. And kind of was really into, like, reading and just acquiring knowledge and just like being really studious. Um, I was really into education. That's one thing my parents looked up at me and like, you're really smart. You're going to go be a lawyer or a business person. 
So that was kind of always my objective growing up is to just do as well as I could in school so that I could just achieve this in state that my parents had hoped for me. The interesting thing about that is like, you know, as I got older, obviously that in state, I started to find it more myself. And now I'm in this place that no one ever thought I'd ever be in, including myself, which is looks very different than, you know, when I was 10 and I was like, oh yeah, I'm going to be a lawyer. Like, Claire Huxtable. Um, so I have to get all A's in school so that I can be a lawyer like Claire Huxtable and, you know, have money. So that was kind of basically my upbringing. So growing up on the advanced prep track, you it sounds like you got a lot of validation for your smarts and, and maybe also a lot of pressure to use your brain to make your way in the world. But did it make you feel socially separate? Or did it make you feel special and like you found your community earlier on? That's really interesting. So I think I found my community because I was always like um, in gifted and advanced classes. And then like in elementary school, we had this program called um, College for Kids. And I remember in fifth grade, you know, we would get on the bus once or twice a week and they'd take us to Florida State or Florida A&M. And we have advanced classes and we spend a lot of time with the college students there. And there was like this special lab. So, you know, there's always a community of, of us kind of smart kids that, you know, kind of travel together. And then in middle school, I was like in all honors classes. I was with those kids and my best friend now, um, I met her in middle school um, and we were just in honors classes together. And then when we went to high school, we're an international baccalaureate. So you've been rolling with the academic elite for your, your whole life. Yeah. You know, it's, it's so funny because now I feel like I'm in this role and, you know, connecting that kind of hook from as a kid to now, like sometimes I feel really dumb. Um, Like, (laughs) no, seriously, like when I'm at work or I'm with like people around Silicon Valley and, and tech and, you know, talking to some people, there are some extremely, sometimes feel out of my depth. I went to design school, right? So like I'm in the room with people like who've graduated from Harvard, blah, blah, blah. MIT, we're in the same rooms, right? We're working the same jobs. So obviously I should feel like, you know, neck to neck, but Definitely have had imposter syndrome. Man, I think the more I talk to people, the more I think that's just a natural part of the human experience. Like, everybody has it at some point, don't you think? Yeah, I think so, too. Okay. I, I try not to claim it as, like, a thing that I have. Right. But, yeah, it's just, like, going through kind of, like, an arts program and having a profession that, which is really interesting because I've transitioned to a kind of a new role where being a smart designer is looked up as... My kind of discipline that I'm working right now with experience design is really about um, insights and analysis and synthesis of experiences. Mm -hmm. And so I kind of feel like I'm back into my kind of brainy cerebral world, whereas when I was working in communication design and product design, and not to say, because I know designers will email me, not to say those aren't brainy cerebral places because they really are. It takes a lot of thinking to translate, you know, really complex ideas and matrices into very simple solutions. Yeah. But those kind of form factors feel a little bit more illustrative or artsy versus kind of the work I'm doing now, which is grounded in data, metrics, insights, feel a little bit more cerebral for me. So I kind of feel like I'm back at home in kind of a a discipline at work where I kind of feel like it makes the best use of my talent. So, Oh, that's a good place to be. But let's go back. Yes. Let's go back to the teenage years, which are usually pretty (laughs) bumpy for people. So far, we've gathered that you have a divorce that you went through a religion? You have to tell us about that. A relig- you called it a cult, so I'm assuming you're not part of that belief system anymore. I am not, and some of my family members are. Hopefully they don't listen to this. 
<laughs> okay. Um, yeah, I mean, and you were I, on the AP track in in IB, mm-hmm. so that's a really interesting adolescent experience. Yeah, walk us through it. I mean, I spent like my high school years were all about the academics, like okay, even more so because IP IB was such a demanding program. So it was very, very rigorous. Like, you know, I spent weekends at my professor, my teacher's houses studying for AP tests. Like, it was really all about the academics. I was in band. And then when I got to high school, I thought I was going to get to be in the band. And um, that didn't work out because my academics took such a front mm. stage in my life. So I had to drop mm. out of pretty much anything extracurricular. And so, you know, I had my little friend crew who were also in IB, and it was just really all about us trying to make it through. I was a typical teen, which, you know, like, moody, hated my parents. (laughs) 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 You know, um, that kind of thing. I recognize (laughs) that. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, it was pretty bad, I think. Um, I look back, I was like, man, I was kind of mean. Um, (laughs) You know, my parents were pretty supportive in that, like, you know, they made sure I had a car, because I had to go to the library and spend lots of time going back and forth to university libraries, like, my just academics just really were the core of my life for high school. It was very, very, very intense. We would compare like, oh, I moved up two ranks in my class at report card time, right? Like that's the kind of kids we were. Wow. So, yeah, it was pretty very competitive. So moving into the college years, did you, I mean, did that feel like a pressure cooker and the college years were like freedom and time to cut loose? Or did you just like put yourself on this very competitive tract of academic excellence? Yeah, that's so interesting because, you know, I never really thought about it, but I don't think I've ever had a freedom period, like a a wild time. And I've never like I've never had a period in my life that was about being wild or hmm. completely responsibility free. Do you feel I, like that's I, you know, something I, that's going to come in a midlife crisis or something that you just don't need? You know what? I don't think I need it. I think. I, okay. Or maybe, or maybe I don't know, but I don't feel, <laughs> I don't feel like there's an impending crisis for me. I am just a very driven person, okay, and I am really just all about my goals, and I've just always been like that, and I'm still very much like that. Things that bring me discomfort are feeling like I'm off track with my goals, or you know, taking step back or being unclear. I've just always been very driven and wanting to be very accomplished. You know, I've really talk to myself about that and and wanting to make sure that those are my goals because sometimes, you know, it's easy to get caught up in external validation, wanting to achieve what other people think is best for you. So, you know, I've really examined, you know, my drive in that area. And so, you know, I just really have high aspirations and to get there, there's just some level of sacrifice. So I sort of sacrificed kind of like this wild thing, you know, I went to college and I, went to college again, and then I went to college again, and then I immediately started working. You know, then I moved cross-country, done that a couple of times. You know, I came across from Boston to San Francisco to work at Slack, and then, I went, you know, trying to climb the ladder at Slack. So, you know, it's just really all about what more can I achieve professionally. So those three different college degrees, I get that you're completely driven, and it sounds like throughout your all your adolescence and childhood, you have developed for yourself a repetitive method for setting goals and achieving goals. I mean, that's just what I'm picking up. Correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah, Um, that makes sense. But at the same time, did you always know that formal education was going to be the path? And then did you know when you went to school, your first degree, was that 
did that feel like the goal for you? Or did you know it was a step on a longer path? Oh, yeah. So what happened was I went to business school at the advice of my mother because she was like, that's what you should do. I was like, great. Okay. All I know is I wanted to achieve something and generally achieve something high paying. That was kind of like the North Star. It didn't really okay. matter what it was. So I was going to go to business school and, I went, and you know, I went to Florida A&M and I was in the five-year MBA program. <laughs> I went to, uh, on a couple of internships and I realized on internships that like, this isn't the life for me. I can't wear a suit every day. <laughs> I really hate this work. So I, you know, I went, I interned at NASA, shout out to NASA. I was in a bunch of analysts in the space station group. That's like, cool. Yeah, it was mm-hmm. pretty cool. Early 20s and just like, do I really want to like be reconciling grants and taxes and blah, blah, blah. Like, this is what I really want to do. I was on a message board goofing off and found design as, um, I was on the Roots message board, which is a music message board that was really popping at the time. People were talking about design as a profession and like a bunch of designers hung out on this music message board. And that's where I met this guy. And we're still friends. We've never met, but we've been friends over the internet for like 13 years. Like, <laughs> it's, it's really strange. <laughs> um, but we've kept up with each other. He's got married, got kids. And we've just been congratulating each other all this time. But I met him um, and he kind of showed me design of the profession. There's something about it that grabbed me. I spent a lot of time in high school doing art. So in IB, you could take a subject at two levels. You could take one at subsidiary level or higher level. And that means either you spent two years working on it or four years working on it. So I took art at higher level. I built a portfolio over four years. And then my senior presentation was, you know, you had to pin up and discuss it and go through your sketchbooks and talk about how you developed this theme and how it's evolved over the years, right? So um, I was pretty into my art at the time. And so thinking about design is really kind of connected to me on that level. But I never really had anyone show me that that was a way that one can make money or make a living for themselves. Mm-hmm. So I was like, oh, there are people like who are doing this and they're making a living for themselves. And this is pretty cool. At the time, I think it was like Napster or LimeWire or something like that. I, I pirated Photoshop and Illustrator. Sorry, Adobe. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and I pirated those programs and I just started playing with them and realizing what I could do with them. And so that's kind of like how design kind of came into my life. Then, you know, I decided to drop out of the um, five-year MBA program and just to get my bachelor's. I had enough credits to get the bachelor's. At that time, too, like, at, you know, we had to take liberal arts classes and history really kind of pulled me into, I was like, maybe I'll be a history professor. You know, I didn't really, I just really didn't know what I wanted to do, but I was like, oh, maybe I'll be a history professor. So um, I just stayed at Florida A&M and spent a year going through that program. And, you know, at that time, I actually had to do a co-op for the program. And I ended up at this museum, the John G. Raleigh Museum in Tallahassee. It's an African-American history museum. They have a limited budget and, you know, they needed some design work. And I was like, hey, I've been practicing all this time. Let me show you what I can do to help you save money on a budget. So I started making things. So I was really supposed to be there, like, learning archival things and, you know, mm-hmm. just connected to my history <laughs> masters, right? But I ended up doing a lot of graphic design for them. The part of my co-op, I think I remember getting introduced to like the main woman that did design for them, who's like a consultant for them. And so um, I was like, wow, okay, this is really a thing. And people are like starting to pay me for this. Like I did a website for a couple of people. This was back like where you could like make a website in Photoshop and like chop up the slices and just like <laughs> yeah. um, load it up. And then also too, I used to like steal people's websites and put it on my own server and like go in and play with the CSS and figure out kind of, you know, 
reverse engineer to figure out how to code. You know, I taught myself CSS, HTML, you know, all of this like outside of classes. So, you know, it just reached a compendium and I was like, you know, I just really have to do something with this. So I ended up applying to PhD programs and I decided to apply for a few design programs as well. Didn't think I would get in. I just, I used the little, the little crap that I made, which is really bad as my portfolio. And, you know, Lord heaven had it that schools actually let me in <laughs> and they actually gave me money. I was like, what? <laughs> this is so strange. I was like, I'm horrible. Like I could, you know, I, I knew it. I had, you know, I had enough self-awareness to know that I wasn't really that great because I could look at the other work and see work that I saw that was like out there in the world that was really good. And I looked at my work. I was like, my work doesn't look anything like that. But I got in to some schools, unbelievably so. And I decided to take that route and the rest is history. So where did you go? So I went to Atlanta College of Art, got there, and they told us on our first day, they were like, welcome to Atlanta College of Art. We're going to sell ourselves to SCAD, which is the Savannah College of Art and Design. <laughs> so you'll only be at Atlanta College of Art for one year before we sell ourselves. And that had a bunch of implications. So I was like, oh, wait a minute, I just moved to Atlanta only for the school to dupe me and tell me that they're selling themselves. And they didn't tell us that before we accepted or moved. So I ended up transferring to Kansas City Art Institute. So I moved from Atlanta to Kansas City. I worked under a wonderful director. Her name is Brocket Horn, who was my advocate and really just poured her all into me and really helped me turn out some great work and get some great opportunities. Can't swatch in store? Finding your perfect foundation match is basically impossible right now. That's why Il Maquillage's online quiz is such a game changer. It finds your perfect match in seconds from the comfort of your own home. And it gets even better. With Try Before You Buy, you can try your full-size shade at home free for 14 days. So convenient in times like these. Take the quiz at ilmaquillage.com slash quiz. That's I-L-M-A-K-I-A-G-E dot com slash quiz. Support for Clever comes from Master and Dynamic. We know you love great design and care about quality audio. So we know you will love Master and Dynamic's headphones and earphones. Brilliant sound and design motivates everything they do. So Master and Dynamic products are the perfect gift for the music and design obsessed alike. And after you see the craftsmanship and premium materials, we know you'll want to get a pair for yourself too. Whether you're looking for luxurious and comfortable over-ear headphones, portable and power-packed true wireless earphones, or an immersive wireless speaker, Master and Dynamic has what you need to upgrade your listening experience. Hear your favorite podcast, clever, obviously, and your favorite songs in a whole new way. Visit masterdynamic.com and use the code CLEVER for 10% off your new pair of headphones. Terms and conditions apply. That's masterdynamic.com. Okay, so now you've got a design degree. So can you kind of walk us through the career path that happens after you graduate? During design school, I um I interned quite a bit. So I interned at Converse, interned at Payless. And so I was able to create a portfolio of all kind of published work. So when I left design school, the height of the recession, like 2009, and no one was hiring, like it was really bad. So very few people were getting jobs. So um, I was really lucky in that I had spent so much time 
in design school being really focused because I really knew why why I was there and no one else knew why I was there like my mom was like what the world what in the world is going like what are you doing <laughs> um my dad had my dad my stepdad walk on dad my passed away during this time as well so it was pretty tumultuous in that regard I built up a portfolio I didn't have any of that stupid like student design work like you know design a wine label or whatever <laughs> so I was able to actually secure a job I went to um, Reebok and I was an apprentice there, moved to Massachusetts and I was an apprentice at Reebok. And so that was a one year program. We kind of worked under a more senior designer. So I worked in the, the graphics team. We put graphics on product and apparel and clothing and baseball bats and shoes. And it was great. So I had my own t-shirt lines I got to work on. I got to work with on setting trends and themes for the season I did a lot of the little girls and baby clothes. So it was so much fun to do graphics for that kind of stuff. So I spent a year doing that, which was really good. I really didn't want to do that. So <laughs> it really taught me what I didn't want to do. I just felt like it wasn't a cerebral enough job for me. Cause it was just like, just make stuff look cool. And that doesn't resonate with me as a kind of a theme. Mm-hmm. After that, they didn't hire any of us. I don't believe because it was still in the recession and no one really had any money and it seems like that program was actually created because they did not have to hire people full time because they could just hire people right out of college and pay them peanuts. Um, so I moved, got a job at Puma, um, which is also in Massachusetts and Boston. So I worked on a lot of store stuff. When I was in design school, I worked at Payless I and mean, I did a lot of store graphics. So that kind of hooked to my background there. And I worked on a lot of like back to school activation and brand campaigns, social media stuff which was pretty cool. I learned a lot there um, about the production of design and really understanding design of the business. And then um, I went to IDEO after that, which to me is the, my pinnacle kind of design experience in terms of really learning how to be a designer. So I applied to IDEO while I was at Reebok and they just didn't call me back at that time. When I was at Puma, they reached, I think I was like my, my sixth month at Puma. IDEO reached out to me. I remember because it was right before Christmas. And they were saying, you know, we want to interview. I was like, wow, IDEO wants to interview me. So we, you know, set dates. And I ended up getting that job because I didn't stay at Puma the full year. And they were kind of upset with me. I kind of quit really soon. You bailed on um, them for but, IDEO. But it sounds like, like, who you, wouldn't? You, sounds like you knew what you <laughs> yeah. wanted. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, who wouldn't want to work at IDEO? So mm-hmm. um, IDEO was really transformative for me in so many ways. I would consider IDEO, like, if you were getting paid to go to grad school, that's kind of what the experience is like. You just learn so much. You think you're a great designer and you go there and you realize you have a lot to learn. So you just see so many different problems at different scales across different industries. The people there are extremely brilliant. So you just level up in ways that is really hard to do anywhere else. I spent three and a half years there and I worked with some of the most brilliant people I, I could ever imagine. You know, I really learned how to be a designer there. I really learned how to think and apply business to design. So the interesting thing is a lot of the stuff that I had experienced before all kind of came to a pinnacle there. Um, it's like, oh, wow. Because that's the first time I met people who are business designers, right? Mm-hmm, it's like, mm-hmm. what is the hell is a business designer, right? But now I know what a business designer is. <laughs> and now I see how, you know, the stuff that I learned at business school is very relevant to the work I was doing. All of it kind of came to a central point there. And you know, I learned just how to be a really good designer there from a craft perspective, from a thinking perspective. And that just set the course for me um, going forward. So there was a project there that we were working on, Society of Grownups. 
that project with a new venture design project, meaning IDEO created the business from the ground up for the client. And so I worked on that project on my tail end Mm. at IDEO. And as that business was standing itself up and getting ready to roll out and actually be its own business, I decided to go with it. I worked on it and I kind of wanted to see it through. So I left IDEO to go work on that business, which was really good because it was like a good continuation of of that work. So I went to Society of Grownups and I was there for like two and a half years and I got to build my teams, build a brand team, build a product team. And it was really, really good. So can you tell our listeners what Society of Grownups is? Just a Yes. So Society of Grownups was, it doesn't exist anymore, I don't believe. Uh, but Society of Grownups was a fintech startup where we kind of wanted to help millennials think about money. So it was this idea that millennials kind of have this space and time where paying back student loans, getting married, having a baby, having a kid, buying a house, like there's this place where a bunch of different financial and social situations collide, what they call grown-up moments. And there's like, you know, you need help kind of navigating that. We had a physical space experience that you can come into with all different kind of classes about like how to invest, how to um, set your real estate plan, your state estate planning, how to learn about wine. So basically all these kind of adult courses, think of like a master's program for adulthood. Man. And it was really great. <laughs> I feel like I could use one of those. I know. Yeah, I think everybody a, can. It's a, it's a concept that should absolutely exist in the world. I mean, there were a lot of just business implications around it that didn't quite work out in its favor, but it is absolutely a concept that should exist in the world in some form. I hope someone, I hope some smart person looks at it and and bring it to life in another way because it absolutely should exist. People actually need this. It actually was pretty transformative to me as well, too. Um, You know, talking about childhood, like, it's not like my parents were, my parents weren't rich, right? We were very working class. You know, I didn't learn a lot about money or investing and going through these academic programs and, you know, working as a designer and a design leader. I started to make more money than my parents probably could ever calculate, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so really learning what to do with that money was important. So spending time with the Society of Grownups and working with people who are certified financial planners was very transformative to me um, in terms of like now I have a real, a real savings, a real way to pay off my student loans um, and feeling really secure in how to handle my money, which I think is a big theme for me in thinking about just like how far I've come from just like where I, where I grew up. Right. So I, I took a lot from that experience. Um, learned how to manage people there, which is really great. And then I left Society of Grownups to go to Slack. So I moved across country from Boston to San Francisco. Yeah, I'm coming up on my third anniversary in October. So I think we're probably at the two and a half year point that I've been in Slack. I have just learned so much. I'm on my second role there. So it's almost like I've started over twice. And so it's just been really a great learning experience for me. Can you tell us about that learning experience? Like, take us inside it? Because you started off as the head of communication design, and now you're the head of global experience design. Yeah, I was the head of um, communication design. That was my first role. That's what I was hired for. I was the first person in that role. It's so funny because the site of Grown Ups was like 90 people. And I came to Slack. I was like, whoa, this is a big company. It was like 300, 400 people at the time. Can you just explain what head of communication design is? I don't really understand communication design. It would be great. Maybe some of our listeners aren't familiar with what that actually means. 
Yeah, so communication design is analogous to brand design. So it's all of the design that marketing needs to tell the story. So any design, if you think about product design, which is the actual product, how it looks and feels and behaves, if you use Slack, if you think about communication design, it's all the other stuff. It's the logo, mm. it's the brand, it's the marketing materials, it's the events. All of that stuff needs a team to make it um, and to help tell and craft the story about what Slack is Got to it. users. So, so that's what a, communication design is. Okay. And as a real world example, Slack just recently rolled out a new logo. And yes. were you responsible for how you explained that new logo? Because that... I was not because I was not in that role in the, um, okay. in the logo rolled out. Okay. But, right. but the communication design team was and they were responsible for that. Okay, so that's what that means. And that's a tone or a culture that you helped to build before moving into your new role. Yes. Okay. Yes. I was the first person to have that role. And when you roll, when you come to a new startup and you're the first person in a role, it is very, very difficult because what happens is, is they know they need someone to do a thing, but that's pretty much <laughs> all they know. So, <laughs> so when you're charged with that, um, you have to figure out all of the rest. Also, you have to do that while you are working at a very, very fast moving company with a lot of demand. So there's just a lot going on. So when you kind of come into that role, you're defining it. You're helping other people around you understand what it is and how to engage with you. Mm -hmm. Um, You're also building a team, which means you have to build a culture. You have to hire. You have to make sure those people work well together. You have to instill processes on how to work together how to have them work with you how to have you work with them how they work with all the other people in the organization right so you're doing all of that stuff at the exact same time so it is it's a very 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 difficult thing to do but that's what you sign up for for me it's you can't get any better training than that mm-hmm. <laughs> like it's like it's like five years of training and like two right, right? like because you just have to stand up a team, you have to stand up a culture, you have to stand up that engagement, you have to define what your role is. And to me, that's very exciting. So for me, you know, there's been this theme of being the first in a role. And I've really, really liked that. Like I was the first designer at Society of Grownups and I built the brand and product teams there. And I came to Slack, I was the first person in the communication design role. Now I'm the first person in the experience role and I'm building a team in there. So I really, 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 really love being the first person in a role and building out the team and, and what it means to be in that role. That's pretty exciting to me. I've never, I haven't had a role yet where I've gone in and inherited a team. So maybe that is the next thing I might try because I probably need to learn how to do that. <laughs> so experience design, can you explain what that is? Is that UX or is that just like every aspect of a user, what they touch, see, I am in the process of trying to define experience design, <laughs> but you know, from a, at a basic level, the experience design team sits under workplace and our workplace team is responsible for how visitors and people that work at Slack and all of our guests experience Slack on a day-to-day basis. Mm. So no, I don't work on the product experience. That's the product design team. What I work on is built physical environments, spaces, processes in those spaces, operations, how people experience our building, what services they get. Um, So thinking about a service experience is really kind of the analogous kind of, I think, design term right now. Service design, 
experience design, those are kind of the same things. How do you kind of measure the success of, of something you do in terms of experience design or even communication design? I mean, with communication design, you measure this, there's, there are many metrics, right? So marketing has a ton of metrics. Um, it might be eyeballs that have seen a thing. It might be clicks. It might be an increase in unaided brand, aware, brand awareness. It might be how many people attended a thing. It really depends on the project and what the project's goal is. It might be, did we clarify this feature enough? If we did, that means X amount of more people signed up than before we changed this thing on the website. So there are just many, many different ways to um, kind of measure success in communication design. With experience design, part of my job is to build out what those success metrics are. A lot of that will be around like how much productivity gains we can increase. For example, um, when we build new offices, are we building those offices in a way that designers, engineers, and the salespeople um, can do their best work? When we get help requests from people around Slack, what is our responsiveness to those requests? Are we able to meet those needs? When we roll out the new lunch menus, how how long are people waiting in line before they're able to make it through the, the catered lunch on Mondays, right? So there's all kinds of success metrics around like how people experience our workplace. So, you know, being new in this role and starting to kind of think about like what it means for Slack, part of my job is definitely starting to define that and getting data around that. Um, to help us make choices about how we operationalize our spaces for our employees. So it occurs to me that's a really smart use of Slack's resources to take somebody like you who's clearly so gifted at building culture and move you into a position where you're building the culture of the workplace across the globe. In many ways, your leadership style must be what has gotten you recognized. Your ability to carve these new paths, to build teams, and to define a culture. Can you talk about your leadership style? Because I'm fascinated. I don't think I've ever articulated what my leadership style is. When I was at IDEO, um, I spent a lot of time working on service design projects. You know, I worked on like CVS, like there was like the Minute Clinic, right? Um, Mm -hmm. Worked on some bank projects. Um, like, how do you get people through through banking lines? Like, there are a ton of these types of projects where I just really learned how to think about how to move people through spatial experiences, um, how to operationalize those spaces to be efficient. And so moving, you know, society of grownups, we also had a physical space where we had to think about that all the time. So it's kind of, like, come full force in that, like, you know, I think I, t- I said earlier, like, it's a pretty cerebral job, which is why I really, really love it. I think one of the things for Slack in particular, and one of the things I've been thinking really hard about is like, how do we start to align with our product? We have this world changing product. We're trying to change how people work and make their working lives more simple, productive, and pleasant. And as we scale as a company, um, we're affecting more and more lives. There's actually a missed opportunity there. If we don't look at ourselves and say, how do we best make our own employees' lives more simple, pleasant, and productive? What cues can we take from our product aspirations and apply them to our own workplaces? If we're going to say, you know, our, our our product is culturally transformative, and it is, we've gotten that feedback. We have, you know, we need have to apply that to ourselves. So I think that kind of insight, I guess, is representative of my leadership style. I don't know. 
when I moved into workplace after I left the um, communication design team, no one really had any aspirations for what this was going to be. Like no one knew what it was going to be. I just wanted to try a new thing. Right. And, um, and try a new role. And I was like, Hey, I can go over here. Cause I've done this type of work before. Let's just see what this is going to be. And um, my boss at the time, you know, he was just like, okay, let's just see what this is going to be. And so I've really um, been able to kind of carve out what this is going to be. And he and I have worked really closely and de- kind of defining what this role is going to be. So I've been in it for like a year now, I think, literally a year probably to the day and it started off as something different and it has evolved very quickly over the year i think you know i'm looking forward to some moving needle work starting to to define like you said culture metrics real data and really making the workplace team and making design of workplaces a strategic advantage for slack uh, Mm -hmm. because i i truly believe that you know if we can do it for other people we can do it for ourselves so I don't know if I have a leadership style per se, but more so is I just have big lofty aspirations. And I think Slack is just a company that's ambitious and is a place for people who have big lofty um, aspirations. The steward said, you know, like be unreasonable. So I'm unreasonable in my, you know, my aspirations for what we can do. Um. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. I love that you just made a case for being unreasonable in your aspirations, because I think really... That's what we need creative people to do is to envision things that don't exist and then set about making them exist. And a lot of people are going to see them as unreasonable to begin with until you actually make it happen. And then they're like, oh, (laughs) all right. Do you want to be our head of global experience design? (laughs) (laughs) That's actually kind of how it happened, too. (laughs) That's that's pretty much how it is. And, uh, you know, like I think the thing what I have what's in front of me, though, is to really make making sure that I tie these aspirations to our business objectives. Right. And be really aligned about like making sure that, you know, it's not creativity for creativity's sake. We're getting some real gains here. We're really moving the needle in in the right direction. So it's a pretty experimental role. Um, You know, I was working on my roadmap for Q1 and about half of my kind of projects are self-defined. They're problems that I've seen that I think I can reasonably justify an investment in dollars saying, okay, I see this problem. If we fix it, here's what I think we get out of it. And so I honestly feel like I have the best job at Slack right now. <laughs> I really do. Um, I, I, you, know, you know, And then I have some other ancillary stuff that I get to work with um, Stuart in buying art for the, the space. Oh, um, developing that's our fun. art program. Yeah, so I think I just, you know, I think I have a really great job. Well, and then just in spiraling that out to the greater general public, the example and the culture that you're able to build at Slack for the workplace is going to be very visible. It's going to be looked at. The success of that mm-hmm. is going to be replicated in other businesses. And so you... My God, I hope so. Your position has the implication, you know, the the potential to ripple out across so much of workplace design, workplace experience design. That's absolutely the goal. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's why I said, you know, I don't have any intentions of ditching this in my two and a half year mark, which I'm at. (laughs) (laughs) I have a lot of work to do and it's really, it's all inspiring work. So like I'm all in on this. I am feeling your appetite for the (laughs) digging in and figuring it out. And that is so inspiring. And you gave just a segue here to something, another thing that I think is really inspiring about you. You gave this incredible talk at a 99U conference 
about inviting yourself to the table, which that is talk, something. Oh my God. I hate to interrupt you. That talk kept me up for weeks. <laughs> Well, tell us about it, because I feel like, A, everybody should go watch it because it's incredibly powerful. And B, you can tell, and you talk about it in the talk, that you really made yourself overcome your own personal fears to do that talk. I haven't given a talk since then. That's how crazy that talk scarred me. Oh, no. (laughs) Were you traumatized? Oh, because I feel like it's so important. Well, tell us first about the idea of inviting yourself to the table, because that as a concept is really valuable. Yeah, totally. So inviting yourself to the table is really all about like not asking for permission and just really kind of like, you know, digging in there and jumping over gatekeepers to get yourself to where you want to be. And, you know, that's just been a theme in my life. Like, you know, even, you know, we didn't really dig into this, but like I landed a Slack because I was on Twitter and I followed some Slack designers <laughs> and I, I pinged one. I was like, hey, I never see design jobs on your on your website. You guys ever hire designers? You know, that was almost a two-year conversation that I had with some of those folks there before I ever came. Um, and that was really me, like, getting access to these people through this communication medium. And then eventually, like, weaseling my way in there, like... <laughs> You know what I mean? Yeah. So, like, <laughs> I could have actually is... been in Slack two years earlier if I had have jumped on some of the earlier roles. Yeah, so inviting yourself to table is just as inviting yourself to table. People like me have to worm around gatekeepers because we're never the identified target of people don't think they, they don't see black women. They don't think, oh, she's so successful. She's so smart. Like, I'm never the archetype for what they're looking for. So I just can't stand there and like hope to get chosen because it just won't happen that way. I can talk a lot about why that is hurt, painful, but like that would be a waste of time because just it is what it is. So then it's like, how do you get moved past that and start to bring your destiny to your own hand as much as you can? That's not to say there aren't obstacles or, you know, setbacks or things like that. And I think we still should also hold people accountable for, you know, discrimination and stuff like that. But like, you just can't rest there. So for me, it was just like, how do I start to just achieve what I want to achieve? against those odds and um you know i think i've been able to do a lot by having that mindset hopefully setting an example for other people to um not let identity or whatever stop them from getting to where they where they want to be so it seems like such a designer's perspective too to be able to have this in a macro sense look at the big picture okay here's the system i'm operating in and i could focus on what's not working and the injustice of it all but the injustice of it all is actually draining and time wasting and not productive for the executor of this plan that needs to take place what's really at play here is i have valuable ideas that they're not receiving because I'm not getting invited to the table. So I'm going to invite myself and they're going to see <laughs> that these valuable ideas can, well, or maybe they will or they won't. You'll have to make that case. But at least now you've got a voice at the table. What I'm giving you credit for is the ability, I guess, to compartmentalize the pain of the injustice of it all in order right. to work on a solution and put yourself, your physical body, your personal identity, your ego, your the person you're with at the end of the day, put that through the very vulnerable process of inviting yourself to a table where they didn't extend you the invitation. Yeah, that's exactly it. So, 
yeah and it's just been a it's just been a theme and i just i, I hope it inspired others because you know i think everyone to some degree can relate to that regardless of who they are very few people are the archetype even there's some white men that are the archetype right like queer man or whatever right so it's just like mm-hmm. i think in some way it's relatable to everyone that like you sometimes you just have to go the extra mile and the thing is you have something that someone wants to like there's someone waiting on you to like do it because there are other people out there like you um who might not have the courage or who are not courageous enough to um, be able to push through i'm i'm like i'm great like it would be like <laughs> it would be such a travesty if like you didn't know me right or know about my <laughs> ideas right like how dreadful so it's like (laughs) well i think that's the mindset that's so powerful it's not like you need me at the table because i want to accomplish something or i want to climb the next rung up on the ladder it's like you need me at the table because there are other people out in the world who are waiting for my ideas to make that their lives better exactly so yeah we have to push through and speaking of pushing through, you made yourself do that talk and you say you're still scarred. So, oh man, that talk, I woke up with nightmare the two weeks before I would literally wake up at like 3 a.m. and go, oh my God, I'm talking in front of 3,000 people. Oh my God. And, <laughs> and then I would get up and I would do my talk and then I would go back to sleep. Yeah, I haven't, I, I think I've been on a panel or two since then, but I have not given a keynote since then. And I have been invited to a shit ton of keynotes and I've turned them all down. And my coach, oh my God, my coach hates me. Um, she's like, what are you doing? You're, so I have, a, you know, I have an executive coach. Okay. And, she, <laughs> and she's not happy with my level of external engagement with, with speaking. So I'm going to do, I'm working on a, a project at Slack right now that I'm totally in love with and people will know about it soon. I can't really say more than that. And so when that project goes live, I am absolutely going to do many, many, many talks um, about this project because like this project's my baby. So. Oh, exciting. Yeah. Just to get kind of philosophical and existential, what's at the core of your fear of public speaking? If you have the guts and the gall to invite yourself to a table that's not extending an invitation, why does it crowd of people who want to see you that's a great question because let me tell you the 99u community is so good when i got done with my talk people were like oh my god you know they were so welcoming like it was like people the crowd is on your side right so it's like people are there they want to hear you they're on your side but like the writing of the talk the memorizing of it the having to talk it through with like confidence is super hard for me. Like, you know, so I'm, I don't mind doing like interviews or panels, you know, those work for me. I could do those. Mm-hmm. I wish I was invited to more like panels or interviews, but like the giving the talk and memorizing a 30 minute talk is horrifying in front of thousands of people. Cause like, what if you forget a line or you get stuck you know that 99U video had the also the um, the courtesy of being an edited video because they don't just put the raw video up there. I think I got <laughs> I think I paused once, so I think I did actually pretty good when I got through it. Uh, but one girl did say she's like, "I can tell your knees are shaking." So that video has the benefit of being edited, FYI. 
<laughs> you didn't get the raw version where my voice was probably tempering. So it's just the format of that. Like when I see people public speak, like or watch TED Talks, I'm just like, wow, how do they like memorize 40 minutes worth of talk? Like that's just a very hard thing for me. So that's why I don't like public speaking. If I could okay. do this, if it was like me and you on stage right now doing this in front of 4,000 people, no problem. Consider that an invitation. I would love to do this on stage with you in front of 4,000 people. <laughs> no okay. problem with that. But I, I'm really grateful that you shared that with us because as somebody who's achieved so much and is so driven and so goal-oriented and also very, very brave – in so many ways, like giving us a window into that vulnerability, just, you know, it's a bridge of relatability that I think everybody can benefit from. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm, hopefully I'm relatable in more ways than that, but yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I want to ask you about something. You mentioned an executive coach. Yeah. So it, it sounds like you're open to mentorship. Is that something that you have done for a long time? Are you mentoring other people? Uh, tell me a little bit more about that. Yeah, so um, you have to have people on your side. So there are a couple of relationships that everyone should have. You need a therapist. Everyone needs a good therapist. You need a good money person. <laughs> <laughs> Help you with your money and your taxes. You need a good executive coach, some coach. And so, and then you need a mentor. And so coaches and mentors to me are very different. So um, a mentor is someone, and there's different types of mentors. They're like your senior mentor. There's someone who has more experience than you, who's going to give you advice about how things go. You have peer mentors who are like at your level. You can compare your day-to-day um, and kind of trajectory. And then uh, what coaching is, though, is coaching is about helping you come into your own resolve and solve your own problems from from yourself and kind of developing um, that muscle, which is different than mentorship, which is about advice. So um, they're very, very different. So I think you need a little bit of both. They just serve very, very different purposes. Because the coach, you know, they might not have any experience in your exact field. Like my coach, she's not a designer, right? So mm-hmm. I get my design advice from my mentors who are designers. I have those relationships and they're fundamental to your success. It's like training for the Olympics. You've got a oh, whole team helping you be awesome. You, listen, let me tell you something. That is a dirty secret that no one ever talks about. And it wasn't until I came out here that I figured it out. So when I was in Boston, so here's the thing about like when you grow up working class and you don't really grow up or upper, you don't grow up upper middle class or around middle class people. You're like grow up working class. You're in the room with people who are of your similar achievement, but you don't know all of the like undercurrent. So you don't realize how much help other people are getting and you, and you're not having any help. And you're like, well, why am I not like achieving this as fast as X, Y, Z? Because you, like, there's just a lot of stuff you don't get. Um, oh, and like, if you don't our, see that help, you look at that other person and you're like, oh my God, they're so much better at that than I am. I'll never be that good. Exactly. Right. And you don't know that. The, so when I was in Boston, the dirty little secret I found out is everyone had a maid. I was like, oh, you know, everyone that had a housekeeper, and, you know, that was a fundamental thing for me because I it was it allowed me to buy back some of my time and do other things. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, too, is about the mentality of uh, investing money in yourself um, and into experiences and not things. So kind of that idea that, like, your time is so valuable that you need to buy it back for, through services was a kind of fundamental life changing thing for me. Right. And when you grow up working class, like 
people shriek at the idea of having someone come clean your house, right? Clean it yourself. And, you know, your relatives might even look down on you for having a maid, right? Like, that's, like, not a thing you do. So, like, going up these class ladders and being exposed to people who had different upbringings than me, I started learning all their little dirty secrets. So, the next dirty secret is, like, every successful, like, business person you see who's succeeding has a team of people helping them. They have a coach, they have a maid, they have a therapist, they have a money person, they have a EA or AA who is doing a lot of their dirty work, they have a chief of, chief of staff who's doing a lot of work behind the scenes for them, right? They have a whole team of people that are helping and make, making them the success they are. So that's definitely one of kind of little dirty secrets. If you end up in a room with a bunch of successful senior leaders, directors and above, rest assured that they have at least one or two people behind the scenes helping them be successful. I think Sheryl Sandberg talked about that a little bit in Lean In. I didn't read the whole book, but I remember her talking about her spouse being um, a secret tool for her. But I, and I think that's another kind of little dirty secret too. A successful woman, a lot of them have like spouses that like are able to, you know, be advantageous to them. But mm-hmm. yeah, you need a lot of people in your life to help you get advantages. I, that's something I've learned. <laughs> So do you have a good team then? Do you, I mean, do you, you have your executive coach, your therapist, your money person? Do you have a housekeeper? Do you have an assistant that you love? Do you have somebody that cooks? I absolutely do have a housekeeper. I absolutely do have a therapist, coach, money person. I've been debating on – my coach says I need a chief of staff, and so that's something I've been debating on and looking for the right person. I do have a creative assistant that helps me with some of my projects um, that I do outside of work. This is so exciting. Thank you for opening that window. I mean, it's, <laughs> it seems so obvious now, but it's not something I really spent a lot of time examining. I like to like identify people that are kind of doing kind of what I would like to do or maybe adjacent to it and just sort of just digging in. And you'll just see, like, how are people getting all this shit done? Like, <laughs> mm-hmm. they're, like they're a professional right. executive, but they like somehow have five books out on the New York Times bestseller list. There are a whole team of ghostwriters and people just doing all the work for them. So I've, I've figured out, I've figured that out. So yes, I don't envy those people. They have help. Don't feel like they're just like some person that stays up. And then, and then they do interviews and say, oh, well, I get up at seven and then I eat breakfast with my kids and I do pilates <laughs> for three hours and then I go to the office. Then they also do the interviews where they have these amazing schedules, right? Because they have 15 people doing their work. Right. Did you have any friction in crossing over these class barriers? You know, that's interesting. So there's a book written by Paul Fusel called The Class System of America. And it is, it's a very quick read. I recommend everyone reading it. It's so funny. What he does is he breaks down. He, I think he's British, maybe. I'm not sure. He breaks down the different classes in America and he talks about all the behaviors associated with those classes. Um, and the one thing he posits is that you don't really ever leave the class you're born into because by the time you achieve any modicum of success, the behaviors from your birth class are too set in for you. So you always give yourself away. The book is really funny, though. So and it's a quick read, so I recommend you read it. I believe that to be true. I think you can be in the same room with a bunch of people that, you know, that are different, that have a different class status than you, um, that you're born in. And now you're, I guess, comparatively equal because you're in the same room and you have same similar income. But um, I think there's always going to be differences. Yeah, definitely a lot of friction. It's so interesting. I think money is one of the big ones. Like, 
when I say, you know, society grown ups was transformative for me and I, you know, it helped me with really good money habits um, and really good earning habits. So let me give you this example. I was okay. interviewing, and I won't say where, but I was interviewing this young lady for a designer role and one of her past jobs, I think she's probably maybe early 20s, one of her past jobs was she worked for a brokerage as a um, product designer. And so she worked on the brokerage software. So in the interviews, she pulls up her actual account to walk me through the um, software that she designed for the brokerage. And so, you know, she pulls, she signs in and all her accounts are there. And this girl is like 10 years younger than me. And I was sitting there like, holy shit. Like, how does she have this much money at this age like you know and so you know uh-huh. that's a conversation about like generational wealth you know being able to pass things down and insurance and savings and investments right so there's that whole deep combo there and so you have these conversations that you just realize that people had radically different backgrounds and access than you and, and, and while you may be in the same room you kind of never get over that right so and then it also changes the way you relate to your family because now you've changed, you know, like, you know, your family might have like, you know, vacations within the state were like the, great for you growing up. And now you're like, oh, yeah, I have passport stamps and, you know, mm-hmm. I've moved across the country five times and I make 20 times what I grew up on. You know what I mean? So then you have a very different developed sense from the people that you grew up and loved about money. And so you are always kind of what I call class straddling yourself. You're always in the middle. So you don't have quite as much as the people who you are, who are now your social circle. Right. And then you have way more than the people you grew up with and love and are related to. So you're always in this weird middle. So yeah, navigating that is, is particularly um, difficult. I I think about that a lot. I think especially you know, I think about like what I want to do in the next five years. And I was like, do I want to go back home and be closer to my family after spending so much time away? Um, and, and I always think about, well, am I, when I move back there, I'm, am I going to be able to live in a small town in Florida? Like <laughs> they don't have Postmates <laughs> right there. <you> know? <laughs> <laughs> like, how is that going to work? <laughs> you know, there's no caviar and I don't have Amazon Prime now and you know, like, you know, how am I going to relate to my family? Is it going to be much, much different? You're you're stuck in this weird tween. Yeah. Um, but people don't really talk about it a lot. I've talked to some people here, like, we talk about, like, how many of us have these salaries at tech companies, but we also have spent, send money back home, right? And that's something that a lot of people can't relate to, you know? So, yeah, you're always in the middle. It, does it ever get exhausting being in the middle? Yeah, it definitely does. What happens is people around you assume you're just like them and they just, they say things or they say classist things or, or they assume things about you and they don't realize like, oh, well, you know, you might not be insulting me, but just insulting someone that I love and care about or, you know, so it's like that. And then it's like your other, your family sometimes can't quite relate to you. So they have demands and expectations of you that are outsized. Someone should write a book about this. I have not seen any books about class straddling. Maybe someone has written a book about it. Maybe I should write a book about it. Yeah. Do you ever think you, you might should. write a book? Is that an, like <laughs> oh, something? Yeah. Oh my God. I want to write a book so bad. I actually have five books in my head. 
No, I'm so serious. I was t- telling my coach this. And well, now she you and need I a writer <laughs> to help you on your <laughs> yes. team. She was going to introduce me to a writer. So I have a, um, a Trello board that I keep a bunch of creative ideas on. And I literally have about four books outlined. I just don't have time. And even with that, even like with a ghostwriter or whatever, you still have to set the person up for success. Like there's just a lot of like moving pieces. So I think maybe that's something I'll do in the next phase of my life. But yes, I have a bunch of books that I want to write, but they're going to be about design, not clash. I don't mm-hmm. think. <laughs> but even a memoir that talks about your class straddling experience to some degree, I think would be so in the spirit of representation, you know, it's like, it's so helpful to just see how somebody else navigated treacherous waters. God, does someone, someone want to read a memoir about me? Yes, honey, they do. <laughs> I'm, I want to read for it. fucking serious. Well, that's you. Um, I, it's so hard to imagine. I would be so I'm embarrassed. It's like 50 copies sold. <laughs> <laughs> You know what, though? Even if it's only 50 copies, you could potentially change 50 lives. <laughs> okay. You never know. No, because those people then are going to change the lives of people around right. them. And, you know. Yeah. yeah, I definitely think the class straddling thing definitely needs a, a needs a, a primer on it. I could see a whole capsule podcast on that, actually. That would actually maybe be fun. Well, okay. I want to put your, your brilliant brain on another project slash problem it's sort of class straddling and and sort of a pr problem that the design profession has i mean you didn't really understand that design was something you could do professionally until an online friend kind of clued you into that Mm -hmm. we hear that from so many people we talk to what do we need to do to get little kids and people in the pipeline understanding the power of creativity and design as a profession and that it's economically viable and important to society and you need to grow up thinking you want to be a designer and not just stumble across it in college yeah i said in the face of my life it would be working on that exact problem i actually have a whole program built in a deck um to address this i don't know you do black girls code Yes, mm-hmm. yes, yes. Okay. So I would love to do like the equivalent of that, but for design. And there are a couple actually. So let me give credit to people first that actually are okay. working on this. So there's the Interact Project by Maurice Woods. It's out in Oakland, California, and he works with middle schoolers and professional designers can mentor middle schoolers and he does a whole thing with them. And then there's a project in Boston. AIJ out in Boston has a program that has high schoolers, they can actually, they get jobs during the summer with professional designers they mentor um, and they intern. Um, and so those two products definitely exist. But yes, they're not big enough. I think it's just going to take a massive PR campaign. Uh, maybe it's in schools. You know, I really am, part of it is definitely uh, education issue. Right. Mm-hmm. And the, the sad part is like designers is going to be more and more relevant as a profession than now than ever before. And as technology continues to expand even more so. I, and I think this is a problem that spans all cultures. And I don't think this is just like an underrepresented issue. I think this I think design as a profession is just I don't know. I think one, so there are a couple of things that work against it. So I do know that there are barriers. Right. Because it's such a computer software based profession that like if you don't have a computer and if you don't know these specialty softwares, it's like 
mm-hmm. if you don't have access to that knowledge, you know, these things exist, it's probably something you're not going to have as a 10 year old or a five year old. Right. So yeah. that's kind of like, say, I think architecture is another one of those fields too, right? Like it's very computer based. Um, the, the skill level is very high. There's not a lot of things you can practice on as a young person, right? Actually, I think you could develop that curriculum, but it doesn't naturally exist in a way that some other professions do. Um, so it just doesn't make it, it's just not an obvious profession. But it should be. I feel like it's also just in parenting and education, we should be pointing out things in the built world. Like somebody mm-hmm. thought of this, somebody made decisions, and this is how this came to be. And that's an architect who does that. And there should be toys and Legos and, you know, oh, that's a problem solving curriculums in in school that say, you know, this is a designer's job is taking these parameters and figuring out what's the best outcome. And I know that like access is part of it, but it also can be just so basic if you just point out that everything in the built world has been designed. Yeah. Product system right. cities. You're oh, absolutely okay. right. I can't even I can't even refute that. You're absolutely correct. <laughs> yeah, I wonder why we don't do that. That's yeah, that's that's a really good insight. Yeah, why don't we just do that? Like mm-hmm. Hmm. I'm thinking about my own like personal education that I went through. I'm just like, yeah, no yeah. one ever bothered to point that out. It seems so basic too. It's not, <laughs> yeah. there, there's no, you don't need special books or special supplies or special training. It's basically just like, hey, you're sitting at a desk and somebody one day decided to design that desk and they looked at how you sat, you know, and what would be comfortable. And it's really totally. easy. Yeah, that's so weird. Yeah. You know, I, I never even thought about it from this perspective. Because it's like one of the most mundane things really is to make the stuff that we use every day. And they're like real industrial designers right behind that. I feel like it's the same thing as food and fashion. Like we talk about those design processes a lot. Oh, that is very true. Especially fashion. Mm-hmm. Yep. Interesting. Huh. Now you have me thinking we need some sort of academic book for young kids about design. Mm-hmm. Okay. Has to happen. Okay. So I want to ask <laughs> you about the future. Are you the kind of person that lives in the present or do you look forward? And if you are looking to the future, what do you see for yourself? I am always looking forward. Mm-hmm. So I talked to my, I had my coaching session yesterday. So this is kind of fresh on my mind. I think I'm on a, a five year timeline of debating whether I'm going to stay in the professional world or leave it. That's kind of my next big clip. Mm. Where would you go? I would start my own company oh. and work on my own ideas. Interesting. So I'm either going to stick around. This and- is like the best reality TV show. I'm going to keep my <laughs> eyes glued to Christy Tillman. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. What's happening next? What's happening yeah, either, next? You know, either I'm going to you know try to climb this corporate ladder and eventually one day become an executive or I'm going to stop before then and just start my own company and work on my own ideas. So that is kind of the um, decision tree that I'm in for maybe five years from now. Mm. It's got to happen because I'm getting old and I need to like have a phase two in my life. So, (laughs) and I don't know if I want to spend phase two corporate climbing or starting to work on some of these ideas that need to exist in the world, right? Like, you know, if I don't make this book for design, Kids, who's going to do it? So, <laughs> right. Absolutely. I'm so glad you're fighting for the good fight. So there's a lots of things that, you know, just need to exist that I need to make. Um, and if I don't make them, they won't exist, which may make me sad. So 
I have to I have to cut myself off. It's going to be really hard because I'm very I had a personality test done and I'm very attracted to traditional success. So it's going to be really hard to cut myself off if I don't become an executive mm. in that time frame. It's going to be like, oh my god, am I going to like be 85 years and older regret never having achieved that or? It's going to be really yeah, hard. Yeah, but if you have your own company, you're technically the CEO. So isn't that an executive? Yeah, it's not the same thing. It's not the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's not the external validation. Right, right. Yeah. Right. So. Well, do, do you ever... But you're always looking forward, so you won't look back and regret anything. Yeah, I haven't looked... You know, I haven't... I have not looked back and regretted anything. I hopefully... I, that will continue. When I have to make that choice, I'll feel really good about it. And it'll just be a natural choice. Yeah. So that's kind of like, I have a few years to think about that. Yeah. So, Do you ever think about legacy? In terms of like what? Like, I mean, I think that word is kind of loaded. Is it like kids that money left behind? I mean, anything. It, like when you think of legacy um, and, and yourself, like what do you think about? I think about all those side projects that I need to do. <laughs> to me, those would actually be my legacy, right? If I were able to make a fundamental dent, in design of the profession and make it more accessible to people. Mm-hmm. I think that would be my legacy. Can I ask you to do something? It depends. Since you're a, a data metrics person in your personal life, if you're at all curious about this, will you start quizzing people at your level or people that you work with if they think about legacy and report back if you see any difference between genders or class in terms of how people think about their own legacy? Interesting. Do you have a hypothesis? It's very. It's based on a very small sample, but it definitely, and maybe this is biologically encoded into men, but it seems like men think a lot about legacy and women tend to feel more engaged in the present. I can see that being true. Just, just anecdotally. Anecdotally, yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm not, I'm, and definitely that's a huge you unfounded hypothesis but quote quote um, quote quote <laughs> so don't, don't, yeah. let us, don't let us complaining about this <laughs> yeah i'm just curious i think it's worth digging into because i think it also affects um a female success metric that's really interesting huh yeah because when you asked me that i was just like who thinks about that <laughs> right like, who cares? But yeah, I'd be interested to know, like, the role that kids play in that, too. Like, men versus mm-hmm. women. Yeah, you know. Because, like, there's career yeah, legacy, like legacy and then there's, like... a driven thing. I feel like it's... I feel like that... Word, even the concept probably was thought of, of by a guy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> the family name. Carry it on. Yeah, no, so that's what I'm saying. Yeah. When you say legacy, I'm like, I think either kids or, like, endowment... Or name mm-hmm. left on a building. Yeah. Right? <laughs> Those are like the three things. Right. Or like some sort of dynasty or, or monarchy. Or- totally. The only when I think legacy for women, the only person I come come to mind to me is like Oprah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Cause she like achieved so much that mm-hmm. like her name will be said many, many times in history, even after she passes. So but like yeah. people who who've whose name is actually their brand and their brand kind of carries yeah. on without them. That's interesting. Now you got me thinking, like, do I need a legacy? <laughs> do you have a new project, a side project or a Slack project or something that you want our listeners to keep tabs on or keep an eye out for? You can just follow me on Twitter. Uh, anything that I have that's juicy, I'll announce there. 
Uh, if you follow me on Twitter, you'll get all the haps. Christy T. K-R-I-S-T-Y-T. This has been a really fun conversation. Yeah, it has been. Wow. We've been talking for like an hour and a half. I know. Thank you I for know, taking I the time. time. No worries. <laughs> I'm just chilling. I have, I'm like, I mean, after this, I'm, I'm, I'm actually going to get to work. I'm working on, I have some stuff I'm working on for Slack. So I'm just going to start working after this. So. Also, I want you to have a little bit of downtime because it's exhausting sharing yourself like this with us. And you've been so generous with your whole story and your whole trajectory. Take a little time for KT. <laughs> Thanks for listening. To check out Christy's work and learn more about her, click the link in the details of this episode on your podcast app or go to cleverpodcast.com where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Subscribe to Clever on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you could, please do us a favor and rate and review us. It really helps us a lot. We also really enjoy it when you reach out to us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Clever Podcast. Clever is created, produced, and hosted by us, Amy Devers and Jamie Derringer, also known as 2VDE Media, with editing by Rich Straffolino and music by L1011. Clever is proudly distributed by Design Milk. Ah, Thanksgiving. You've got your stuffing, your gravy, and of course your turkey. But what about the drinks? Don't panic. Just use Drizzly, the number one app for alcohol delivery. Drizzly lets you compare prices from local liquor stores on a huge selection of beer, wine, and spirits, then get them delivered right to your door in under 60 minutes. And right now, Drizzly is giving all new customers $5 off their first order. Just enter the promo code GOBBLE at checkout. Download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y dot com.